This episode of Bobby and Jens is sponsored by Hammerhead Karoo 2. Jens, I know we just got these in and I'm starting to play around with it and I'm quite impressed. How are you liking? I do like them a lot actually. It is easy to use and you don't really have to read the manual to understand how it works. It all comes kind of like self-explaining. That's a big plus, a bonus for me. So yes, I do like it a lot. Well, we know that you're not the biggest fan of numbers, but I am. And I love the size of the screen. And my most favorite thing is the exclusive climber with predictive path technology feature. You know, you don't download every single route when you're out there riding, but with this technology, you can actually see the climb coming up and know how far it is to the top, know the, the gradient that you have to deal with. And, and I love that. So all my Strava data can go straight uploaded and I can share it with the entire world. Well, for a limited time, our listeners can get a free heart rate monitor with the purchase of the Hammerhead Karoo 2. Visit hammerhead.io right now and use promo code BobbyYens22, all uppercase, at checkout to get yours today. This is an exclusive limited time offer only for our podcast listeners. So don't forget to use promo code BobbyYens22. That's a free heart rate monitor with the purchase of a Caro 2. Go to hammerhead.io, add both items to your cart and use the promo code BobbyYens22 today. If you've been to any big cycling event in the past, I don't know, 30 years, you probably have seen our guest today with an earpiece in his ear standing calmly by the start-finish line or conducting a press conference. I personally met this gentleman back in 1990 during the famous Tour de Trump, so that tells you how long he has been at the forefront of great event promotion. Steve Bruner president of King of the Mountain Sports Marketing, joins us today on Bobby and Jens. Hey, Steve Bruner, welcome to Bobby and Jens. Hey, guys, how you doing? Doing good, doing good. I mean, uh, yeah, like I said, we've known each other for a long time, but Give us, uh, give our listeners a little bit of background of how you got started in event promotion and why cycling events seem to be your passion well it's funny because i grew up in kenosha wisconsin which has got the oldest velodrome and i was a runner i was too poor to have a bike i was pretty uh i always wanted to ride a bike i just didn't have the money to do it and so i'd go down to the track on tuesday nights and i'd see all these guys that like Chris Carmichael and trying to Alex Stita, you know, and those are some of the guys that I saw when I was first exposed and they were all track riders. And um, then I did a postgraduate internship in the late eighties at the U S Olympic uh, training center. And I met this guy, Mike Plant, who was associate uh, executive director at that time at USA cycling. And he was a fairly young guy at that time, but he was from Milwaukee. So we hit it off. I, I got to know him as an intern and his, his former wife uh, was my boss there at that time. Um, and so I fell into cycling because I love track cycling, which was uh, even though I didn't do it. And then he offered me a job 
uh, the following like six months later to come out and work for the first medal of sports and the first iteration of that in 1989. So here I was just barely out of college and I had worked in Olympics at that time. I had worked, um, you know, I, I sort of fell into international sports by doing this internship and we did the first event was the tour to Trump. Following year, I met you, you were 19 years old and uh, I think you took fifth in that race if I recall and all these, young American riders were coming up at that time. And it was it, looking back, it was kind of a little bit of the start of the golden era of cycling, which was kind of cool. And so working with Trump at a really young age, I got to know the way they marketed, which was so over the top, which is kind of Trump's personality. His people were the exact same. And so they were pushing this bandwagon of, of kind of you know, blowhardedness. I don't even know what to say. You know, it's kind of just, but they were really good at what they did. So here I was, you know, like 23 year old kid learning how to really promote. And that put me outside the realms of cycling at the time. Because before then, it was only the, not only, but it was the course classic. And then it jumped to this event on the Northeast uh, at that time with the Tour de Trump. And then it, it kind of bled from there. I learned a ton from Mike Plant. The guy was phenomenal. Uh, you know, now he's the president of the Atlanta Braves. So you, you look back at someone who is where he was in cycling and now what he's doing with, you know, professional or major league sport. And it's, it's kind of amazing to look back. So I think, Steve, we don't go that far back, but we go back, what, 15 years probably as well, right? I was just trying to remember, was it Tour of Colorado or US Pro Challenge where we met first? Yeah, it was probably the first uh Amgen Tour California. That would be my guess in 2006. Yeah, probably. Yeah. And I don't know if you did. I think you were riding uh, before that. We didn't, because there was a gap in 1996 when the Tour de Trump ended, or Tour de Pont ended. Uh, I worked for Turner Sports uh, as their director of marketing and, and was chief marketing officer for the Goodwill Games in New York. Then I went for about a year and a half. I was with USA Wrestling, got totally out of the sport. And then I was with the Olympic Committee for five and a half years. So there was a eight and a half, nine year gap when there wasn't a lot of cycling going on before the Tour of Georgia, uh, you know, kind of rebooted that. And that was Chris Aaron Holt and Jim Burrell bringing that on. They had already done the event, I think, once or tw uh, two years. I left the Olympic Committee and then started doing a lot of the, the marketing PR for them. So my company has always been kind of in the shadows, you know, servicing uh, either the ownership group or medalist in marketing and communications capacities. So um, I know we'll eventually get to what we're doing now, but that looking back, getting out of the sport for eight or nine years was actually really good. But my passion was always cycling, Bobby, to, to your, address your question. So getting back in the sport uh, has been really 17 years now, I think. And it was started, Jens, I think when I started really knowing you uh, right around that 2006, 2007. And then, of course, you went on to do broadcast for that event as well. So we were working together almost day in, you know, day in and day out for those events. Well, you've seen the glory days with multiple big cycling events in the same season, but you've also been through those thin periods like we're going through now over here in the USA. You know, we can sit here and say this, that, and the other thing, but from your point of view, what are those main pieces that have to move during these feast or, or famine 
times to to occur? You know, is it sponsorship? Is it branding? Is it marketing? Is it just popularity to the sport? Like, what are those main movers that that get an event or maybe even you know? unfortunately, lose an event? It's a combination. That's a really good question because a lot of people, first thing they say is, why did these events collapse? And why is the U.S. different from Europe? And Jens, you know from your own experience living in Europe and the culture there and the tradition for over 100 years, Bobby, you know, you've raced over there and you've lived over there, so you, you understand that. In the U.S., Looking all the way back to the course classic days and Michael Eisner, the one thing that Michael Eisner got right, I think, you know, is kind of like the trail, you know, forerunner in this. Um, and there are a few others that can be identified during that era with the Red Zinger was they had to put like an American slant on it. And whether that was adding a criterium or circuit races or something that would be uh, a little bit non-traditional, that so the racing element is one piece of it. Um, the second is you've got to get big brands involved. It can't, you can't rely, I think, and it means no offense to anybody in the industry, but I've never looked at it as someone who sold sponsorships for all these years as you have to rely on the, uh, the industry because uh, they only have so much money and they're a lot of times shotgunning it uh, at a grassroots level across a lot of different platforms and a lot of different disciplines. So you have to go after, in the case of Maryland, United Healthcare, being a Fortune 5 company and how big they are, $41 billion company. Uh, and people probably don't know this, but I got Michelob Ultra involved uh, in the sport way back when and, and eventually introduced them to Lance's agent. And, and if you look back at that historically, that was because we were dealing with the Tour of Missouri and it was an event that started in St. Louis. And I was working with the Olympic Committee and I just so happened to be working with some of these same people when I jumped from the USOC a year and a half later, I knew some of those people and we were doing the Tour of Missouri. So some of that is circumstantial, you know, and how you're trying to piece it together. It's like a jigsaw puzzle on the commercial side of what you're doing. Then there's the other half, which I think you know, Jim Burrell, when he was with Medalist and Chris Aaron have done well, which is the public sector. You got to have a willing partner at the public level uh, in order to do these events. So, you know, if you took the tour of California in the first couple of years and Jens, you remember this from racing and Bobby, you're in that same race. San Francisco was unbelievable, wasn't it? I mean, it was just off the hook as far as people and then all of a sudden it kind of fell flat. Why aren't you going back to San Francisco? And there's a lot of reasons that part of it could have been just City Hall got crushed with calls. Oh, uh, you know, I couldn't get from point A to B. I couldn't get my latte that you know that morning. It's kind of stuff like that that all plays a role in the city administration endorsing it, you know, the following year. And so that public-private partnership has got to coexist for the big events to really prosper. And, you know, I could give you literally the reason uh, for the, you know, kind of the demise of each one of those events. And they're all different. Everybody thinks it's the same, but it's not. Some of them were political. Some of them were business. Some of them were kind of like the timing had kind of run out in, in that as well. And we also did the tour of Alberta uh, for a number of years up in, in Canada. And that had its own kind of diversity to it, the way uh, Canada looked at public funding versus private funding. 
So in, in your ideal scenario then, if you want to ever create a new event, what's first? The ID, the location, the sponsorship, local town or the local, the boots on the ground? What would be your first step or in your ideal scenario? How would you create an event? How did you create uh, your new uh, race coming up? The Maryland Classic. Great question, Jens. And I think it started with Chris Aaronholt and I from Chris from Metalist talking, incubating an idea um, that I was talking a little bit in preparation for this podcast with uh, Bobby yesterday, which is you have to at some point as an event promoter call a spade a spade. And if a seven or eight day event costs $10 million and it's hard to sustain, you got to at least look at the model and you got to reexamine it. And uh, for a while, I think that model was stressed and it could have been because there were too many tours. You could say that. I don't know if it's that's if that's the case or the truth, but you'd have to look at when were the events at their peak. And you guys wrote a lot of those ri uh, races that we had. It was always the Thursday through Sunday. That's when the crowds were biggest. That's when people would show up. That's when they were there partying. And so if you took that as kind of the filet mignon in a seven or eight day race, then you should identify and sponsors would identify and even cities would identify with that. So in a state like California, um, you know, you're trying to stretch geography from the northern to the southern part. Four days wouldn't get you there. You know, in Colorado, what was shown with at least the Colorado Classic, which came after the U.S. Pro Challenge, is that four days actually could work. And then how much do you stress out the cities through that process? So to answer your question, Jens, it's really complex. It's not as simple as just saying, we've got a good idea for a course, let's go do it. It's really, first of all, sitting down with the state. So that is, and, and will they put money towards a venture like this? Then you start getting the recommendations on the cities that can best host that. And sometimes the big cities, everybody wants those, but it doesn't always work out that way. And I'll get to Baltimore here in a second with the Maryland Cycling Classic. So once you got those two layers down, then you got to start building your brand. And so what we did, and KOM has been involved in a lot of these, is the context of how you're building that brand has got to be really smart. With Alberta, as using that as an example, and using Missouri as an example, we took the nomenclature, kind of like the brand of what the state and what the province of Alberta were, and we meshed that into the logo right away. And the same thing with Maryland, with the new logo there, if people go and look at it, that's important because now the state feels like they've got entitlement and ownership of the event. And so that that's a really, really critical piece that, and it's a subtlety, right? Because it's, you know, it's a logo. Ah, the logo could look like anything, But if it's got the color, the, the, the tonality to it, and even it could be in the case of Maryland, we took their state shield and blended that in. That to me, that's just smart marketing and it gets the state really behind it. Then you, you got to come over the top and, and have a, a track record at least, which hopefully we have with all the, the events that we've done over the years uh, between KOM and Metalist. So the teams and hopefully the way the U.S. presents itself, and uh, I think Jens, you know this, being a German who's come to the U.S., you're really well accepted. It's not a matter that there's not fans out there. We think there's tons of fans in the U.S. 
you just got to get the right product out there. And so getting the top Europeans, getting the top Americans to both come to the race is, is the next level. Then I think you come over the top with the sponsors and you got to be able to sell it to those big brands, as I was talking about before, and you got to have a certain spin. And that spin has got to be that it's not just a bike race. And you hate to say that, right? Because that's what's centric. You got to sell in a festival. You've got to have other elements that blend in the weekend that make it look like it's like the chariot, you know, on, on, the, on the top of the cake, on the icing, uh, is the race itself. And so this buildup hits and then the crescendo is that finish and the awards and everything and the energy levels just off the charts. That's what I think the, the payoff is for all the hard work you do is, is literally, whether it's a one day or a stage race, that you got the crowd, the energy just captivated towards that one seminal moment, you know, with the finish uh, and then obviously awards. That's a lot to say, but it's a building process to answer your question, Jens and how you get there. And it's a lot of elbow grease. I mean, that's where I got the bags under my eyes now. Yeah. If it was easy, I think we'd have a lot more bike races out there because, um, you know, we've, we've seen great races come and go. Um, most of the time in those historically more popular areas, Colorado, California, Utah. But after a few years delay due to the pandemic, you guys have the Maryland Cycling Classic this year over Labor Day weekend. On September 4th, you will be holding a race from Baltimore County, Maryland, ending 120 miles later with seven laps of a 7.5-mile circuit. Tell us a little bit about the event, the teams that are, that are coming, and, and even the course itself. Yeah, the uh, you know hats off to Chris Ehrenhold. Chris Reed, Will Smith over at Medalist because it's not been an easy lift from a course standpoint. And I'll address that in one second. And then to your first point, with the pandemic, we had this event launching two years ago. And we, that was right you know, at the epicenter of when the crest of the pandemic was hitting. Last year, for a couple of different reasons, we were coming out of the pandemic, but the city just wasn't ready. And we're talking about a high... Uh, density uh, corridor in a city that that you know you can't just run a bike through race through and if they weren't ready and so it was the right decision so now we here, here we are and now we've got a tale of two courses we start out at Kelly Benefits headquarters and John Kelly and Kelly Benefits team they've always been a big um, kind of investor in cycling at least at, in the domestic level we'll start there at their headquarters uh, in Sparks we'll roll route out towards the uh, Pennsylvania state line and do a clock counterclockwise loop and then an inner loop. And I don't know if you remember, Bobby, when you did DuPont those last couple of years, but that horse country out there is, it's relentless. I mean, it's just small. It's a lot of small hills that, that build up. So we got uh, probably about over 5,000 feet of climbing on the outer loop. And then as you come in, it becomes more and more urban. And Baltimore, like Boston, and probably New York, are two of the most urban, as far as population density, uh, cities in the U.S. So we routed uh, these 12-kilometer loops in through very diverse neighborhoods. And so what the city administration really liked is that this is 
And this is part of the plan and the brainstorming going back to what you said, Jens, like what's the why and, and getting the city administration behind it uh, was trying to say this is a free public event and everybody can enjoy it. So we've, we, we're taking it through these neighborhoods um, and the neighborhoods themselves will have their own, I think we go through seven different districts uh, they'll have their own personalities on the district and we're going to fall into people. But that's what you want for a classic race like this. So Kevin Livingston, our competition director, he said, yeah, this is kind of like like the Amstel Gold race. And that's kind of surprised me. And I was like, uh, and I think what he was saying is kind of the blend of of uh, the way that it's almost like this tale of two courses that are, are, are being uh, done and then we finish right in the Inner Harbor on this really long, almost kilometer uh, stretch of flat road, almost like a false flat going downhill to the finish. And it's beautiful. It's right along the, the harbor. And, you know, a lot of times you hear, at least in the U.S., that, uh, you know, Baltimore is, is this or that. Uh, but the community has is, is got a lot of beauty to it. It's along the waterfront. And we're finishing in this gorgeous area right along uh, the inner heart in, in the inner harbor area that I think is going to showcase really well. And so that, and then coupled with the teams, our aspiration the first year uh, was to get uh, three to four world tour teams. Um, we didn't set out to say, hey, we want to be world tour. We know what that does for the budget to stretch it. And going back to sustainability, we want to make sure that the property's uh, sustainable for year two. So we've got Truck Segafredo, we got uh, EF Easy Post. We've got Israel Premier Tech, and we've got uh, uh, Team Bike Exchange Jayco. So those are the four. And ironically, we had interest from three or four other World Tour teams. And so budget plays a little bit in that. And then I think there was some suspect on what was going to happen with the World Cup. You, but you can see with the World Cups in Canada and why we even wanted Labor Day weekend in the first place is that it could be a jump off point for teams from Europe coming over here and then going up to those World Cups in Canada. So that's a lot of strategic design. Uh, Sean Petty should get a lot of credit on the road commission. We've been, Chris Ehrenholt uh, has worked back a lot uh, with Sean on, on where the calendar position was this, you know, for this event. And all that is, is goes back, I think, to the questioning on the sustainability and then why a one day race and why Baltimore, there's a, there's so many different factors that go into that. Uh, but now I think we're finally on the doorstep of the event and we're just eager to pull it off. I think we're all kind of uh, itching after two and a half years of planning. I once went to a charity event in Baltimore, save a limp, right? So what do you do? There's a genetic uh, um, a problem where sometimes then children, they, they have uh, no arms. So what then these uh, surgeons did, they would break the arm and then stretch it. And before it grows together, they would stretch it even further with like a complicated mechanism on the outside of the arm. And they would give these children 10, 15, 20 centimeters more of arm length so they could at least write something or, or hold their own fork and, and, and spoon. So really, they do really like uh, amazing things for these kids. It was fantastic to be part of that. But we talk probably 15 years ago. But um, um, maybe for our um, listeners to better understand, um, how long did it take from the idea, hey, let's have a bike race in Maryland, to actually, yes, we have it next week. Okay, let's cut out the corona times because they, the COVID, that just 
you know, it's nobody could foresee that. But normally from, okay, hey, that's a great idea to, hey, tomorrow we start. H how long is that? How many phone calls? How many miles you have to travel to meet people just for our listeners to better understand? That is an excellent question, Jens. I don't know if I've been asked that, but the uh, we've seen events come together as short as eight months. We've seen others five to six years. And the moons have got aligned. We, al we always say that on our kind of the way we approach it is the, when you say that the moon's got aligned, it goes back to the, that question of how do you piece this thing together? And so you've got to have the public sector aligned from a state and local, depending on where the hosts are. Then you've got to align the commercial aspects of the right level of sponsorships, because if you misstep that and don't have the proper valuation, especially with your, your, let's say, top three or four sponsors, you can miss like this. And then you end up with a gap in the first year. And most of these events lose money the first year, but by years two or three, you're caught up and you're breaking even. And so if you're doing it correctly, you know there may be a little bit of gap funding you need in that first year, and then you jump, close the gap. And so we call zero-based funding where you've got an operations idea up here of, okay, this is a $2 million event. We've got to raise $2 million in funds. And so between public and private, you bring them even, and now you have a break-even model. And if you're doing it right, by year three, you're profitable and you're, you're doing things uh, correctly. Now, I will say that we've had uh, some things that have happened over the years that have become very political where uh, the Tour of Missouri was actually a break-even event after three years, but the governor had fallen out of favor. The lieutenant governor was running against the, the new incoming governor, and it was a product of its own success. And so the new governor wanted to kill it because it was, it was the old administration. So, you know, it, it's, you know, when you look back and you, and you say, how long do you put these things together? It comes in all shapes and sizes. And in you know, like the California, I was a little bit more on the, on the outskirts of that one because I was with the Olympic Committee at the time. But that took about four or five years uh, before it really came online. And on top of the the world tour teams that you already mentioned, you know, Bike Exchange, Jayco, Israel, Premier Tech, EF Education, Easy Post, Trek Segrafredo, you've got a lot more teams here. And, you know, yes, we've got some U.S. teams like Human Powered Health, Team Novo Nordisk, uh, Hogman's Bourbon Action Team, Legion, um, Team Skyline, but you also have a team from Italy, Team Coratech, a team from Ireland, Evo Pro Racing, a team from Colombia, Team Medellin EPM, a team from Panama, Panama e Cultura e Valores, I think that's how you say it, a team from South Africa, Team Pro Touch, and a team from Canada, YOLO Test Team presented by Foremind. On top of that, you have a U.S. national team. The, the kids that get to ride this race are going to be in the national team jersey. How does that is? How does that all work? I mean, you got you got UCI World Tour teams, you got UCI Pro teams, you got UCI Continental teams, and then you have a national team. Um, 
it's been a while since I've, I've seen a race like this. Uh, how does all that come together and how do you select the, di- the, the different teams that, that you have attending the race this year? That's another great question because of the way the composition moves in some of these events. I think we all knew that uh, the Amgen Tour of California ended as a world tour event. Um, I think the mindset going into this event, the Maryland Cycling Classic as a one day, uh, was to look at a composition that would have world tour teams, pro tour teams, and then continental. And so those continental teams traditionally had always been just just U.S. And I think um, the teams have kind of ebbed and waned. you got teams like Evola and Cinch and, and things like that on the club level that have elected not to take out the UCI license but could have been in this race, but I get it. You know, it's like if there's only one big, U- well, there's a couple UCI races, uh, but one at this level, it you pay that licensing fee of 35K or whatever it is. And the answer is, well, we could spend that racing. And so when you start looking outside the realms of the US, we purposely wanted to look at where Maryland has got travel and where tourism could be. So getting a team from Ireland, getting a team from South Africa, there's a lot of symbolism between who you invite sometimes and why. And there's always a lot of subjugation. I mean, uh, uh, you know, uh, Victor Hugo Pena, who you guys know, I got a text from him three days ago asking if he could get a team in uh, that he has down in South America. Unfortunately, we, we had already closed the, the spots. We get those all the time, whether it's Chris or, or, or Kevin Livingston or myself, we'll hear from these uh, these people, some of them who have raced in our races over the years, trying to get their team in. And it's usually at the continental level. So the the fascination of, of, of who gets invited, uh, it's always complex and, and someone's always sitting on the side, but there are some groups that have done really good and performed well in these races, like Axel's team, and Hoggins Berman, one of the best develop, developmental teams, as you guys know, in the world. So, yeah, you want to reserve a spot for those teams. And if they've treated and respected your races over the years, you want to respect them back. And then regarding the U.S. national team, usually with these events, at least with our with our UCI designation, um, which is the old uh, one oars category. You remember the two oars category. It's now one pro tour. Um, we usually have dispensation if we ask the UCI for a wild card team. And so the wild card team should be, and Bobby, you can appreciate this from your days at, at DuPont, is that if we can give a platform for young riders, let's say between 19 and 23 or maybe up to 25 and put them on a team that wouldn't have that, op- you know, you wouldn't be on that team uh, if you, you know, if your team wasn't invited, it gives then the federation a some prominence and gives people like Michael Sayers and, and Jim Miller um, a chance to pick out, let's say, seven riders and give them a chance to be called up to the big leagues. And so that has always been a signature of medalist events over the years. And, and at least from at KOM as, as, the, as kind of the promoting arm of that to really go after and make that publicized. And, and, and it's important. You know, if you didn't have the opportunity, Bobby, and I remember that, that you were 19 and people were like, who the hell is this kid from Glenwood Springs, Colorado? 
and he's up there. And the, the four guys in front of you were people like Sean Kelly and Raul Alcala and Eric Vent, uh, or uh, Gert Jan Tanis and Eric Breukink. And those guys were top 10 in the Tour de France back then. And, and here you were duking it out. Phenomenal. And, and so you don't know what the next generation is going to produce if you don't give them that opportunity. And I think that's what we've got to continue to foster, at least in our races. If you want to get more out of your free time, sign up to Outside Plus. For less than a dollar a week, you can get six print and digital issues of Peloton Magazine, exclusive membership content from bellenews.com, access all the premium content from the whole Outside family, including Yoga Journal, Backpacker, Ski, Outside Magazine, and many others. And that's not all. There are discounts of the hottest gear and biggest events, access to Gaia, GPS, and trail forks, as well as virtual health and fitness courses. It's $350 of value in one $99 annual subscription. But if you head to valuenews.com forward slash outside plus and enter BJPOD25, all one word, lowercase, at checkout, you'll receive our special 25% discount and make a good deal. Great. Now back to our chat with Steve. Now we talked about um, all these races you organized and you mentioned a lot uh, your company KOM and Medalist Sport. Did you ever participate in somebody else's event? And if yes, just for fun or to learn something? And did you learn something if you saw it as a bike rider on the other side? Or you have no time at all to sign up at some other event? Uh, or did you actually like sometimes secretly sign up and let's see how they do it? That's uh, another great, man, you're full of great questions, both you guys. Um, I can answer that two ways. It's a little bit of the latter. I'm so focused, if people know me, I'm so focused on my task at hand that I'm kind of blinded on sometimes what goes on. It doesn't mean I'm not paying attention to what might be going on in these other events. Uh, I, I just feel, uh, and I, I came up through the, like I said, I was, I didn't have a lot of money growing up, so I didn't have a bike. And I, I was a basketball player, football player, like a lot of you know Americans. And I, I was started accelerating and running. So I went to the university, and I was a steeplechaser, fifteen hundred meter runner, cross country, and then uh, got into triathlons really competitively after I graduated. And so that was actually in when I was working for medalists. So I was around cycling. I was able to get on the bike. You know, I was able to do. And um, so my lens was probably more through athletics and uh, triathlon, but then I was exposed at such a high level at such a young age uh, to these events. Going over to the Tour de France, I, I was over there and even in a journalist capacity in my 20s. And so I don't, it's not um, looking back, it's like I had, I was taking in all this stuff at a high level and assimilating it. and. Um, Now, what's to get to your point, Jens, what I'm doing is my son was a runner. He was at Adam State for a year. And then he, about a year and a half ago, he says, you know what? I want to go into cycling. Totally out of the blue. I never pushed him, never thought about it. And uh, and now I'm going around to some of these races. I was back at uh, Tour of America's Dairyland, and I know Tom Schuler for a long time. So it was great to see 
that event. I was up at the uh, uh, crit event here as part of the U.S. Uh, crit championships up up in Littleton uh, outside of Denver, and I saw that. Now he was racing in the he just got his Cat Three license, so he's moved up pretty quick in three four months here. But I've now seen through the lens of him, but I'm also going to these other events. So uh, naturally, I have a lot of respect for you know the uh, whether it's Joe Martin, whether it's uh, Armed Forces Classic, whether it's the, the Crit Series, uh, it's not an easy ask uh, to go out and stage these events in the U.S. and then get the commercial sponsorship you need. Uh, I know what it needs for what I've been doing with these UCI events, and I got even a, not that I didn't have an appreciation before, because I absolutely did, I've even got a deeper appreciation watching my son race and going to those races. Well, you know, you mentioned you like that four-day model. And the the race is on the Sunday. That's the main course. But there is a buildup. I think every race that you see in the U.S. or even in Europe, it's not just about the bike race, right? It's about getting people around, exposing people that probably have never seen a bike race and, and drawing them in with, you know, if, if the race is the main course, let's say these are the appetizers. So tell us a little bit what you have starting on Thursday, September 1st through Saturday, September 3rd during this this weekend so that people listening right now will make a long weekend of this event and not just roll in on on Sunday for for the for the final event. The uh thanks Bobby because I think in reimagining the model and I was talking to someone just last week on this, someone who's been around the sport for a while and and raced and and uh, they said, yeah, this is kind of the dawning of a new era for American road cycling. And I, I paused for a second. It's like I didn't even think about it from that lens, you know, from that perspective. But in trying to take a, we were usually doing these week-long events, taking them down to one day. I think the one thing that we were cognizant of was making sure that there was three or four days of experiential components. So... On Thursday, I created a, this community enrichment day, and this was a byproduct of brainstorming with the state of Maryland that you got to do something within the community. And I know other event promoters are leaning in on this as well. So we created a, a bike jam, which is a bike rodeo in one of the uh, inner city parks. And so we've got different elements and stations and some of the brand ambassadors we have coming into town are, are going to be at that uh, at that bike jam. So that's the community kind of youth orientation. Um, we've also done youth booklets for a long time. My, uh, my wife actually has, has helped along with some of this. She's a school teacher and we've got these lesson plan booklets that we, we hand out and they're, uh, these have been common too, but we started that back in the DuPont days back in the nineties. So the, all those are kind of the community day and what we're doing. Then the next day we've got our team introductions back, and you guys have been part of them, uh, you know, through the years, whether it was Colorado or uh, or California or even Georgia. And those events were usually private. They were held in a, you know, in a location and maybe some a ballroom at a hotel. We've now made that public, and then we flank it with our VIP and we put it down in an area, and that's happening on Friday night. So if you want to grab a beer and come down, you can see the team introductions. And into this beautiful outdoor setting right along the waterfront. Then the next day, 
Uh, we tied in through United Healthcare, the ch a charity ride for the UHC uh, Children's Fund. So if you raise money, it's uh, you ride the ride. But we've built in the infrastructure of the race. The next day, our start area is the start finish for the charity ride. You can go out and do the 30 or 60 uh, or the it's 50 and 100K loop and you'll get the course that the pros are doing the next day. So it's it's not quite a grand top or anything like that, but it's it's similar for the average rider to go out and see what the pros are doing. And then that night, um, uh, I've been working back on this idea with several people and I'm happy where it's uh, ended up, um, but we've got a night with champions, which is a, a, a private event mainly for our sponsors that is exploring ethnic diversity in cycling. So we got Rashan Bahadi, Nelson Vales, Fred Rodriguez, um, Amari Holden, uh, and then um, I, I, you're, you're going to be the first to hear this, so uh, this is good. Jens and Bobby get a, a scoop that we've got Ray Lewis that will be showing up, the NFL uh, Hall of Famer that played for the Baltimore Ravens. Uh, we're also talking to Cal Ripken as well. So uh, these are icons in American sport, and guess what? They, uh, they cycle and they're avid cyclists. So it's kind of cool to bring people behind the platform of cycling. And so Bobby, I think to your point, if we can create opportunities behind the bike and the platform is the bike, you can hit it from different areas. You got the community and youth angle on one day, you've got this team introduction where the average curiosity seeker can grab a beer and kind of learn about what's going on and hear these wacky English accents from different countries. Then you can go you know, on get a, a charity component where there's a give back and then tied up and we're working back. I've worked back with Brendan Quirk on, you know, this is something good for USA Cycling. And it's something topically that should be discussed. Uh, and there's some other things within that, uh, that forum that we'll, we'll discuss. And then it gets back to then race day. Boom. You've got the race component of uh, the start and the finish. And, and everybody's kind of psyched. So all those events are a buildup. And I know, believe me, they've been doing this in, in uh, Europe for a number of years in different ways. You guys know that. You've raced those races. Uh, it might be a beer bash one day, you know, public. Uh, but all that, I think, if we can create the right model, that's the model we're hearing from the future. Uh, you know, the only thing that we'd probably change in hindsight, you know, if it had a charity component, would be probably a, a gravel public event. You know, that would be probably cement all this together in a, in a much more dynamic way. But it also depends on where you're hosting. Like that might be better in Colorado than a very urban environment in the Northeast. So I think uh, the goal here that has been discussed is a triple crown. And uh, we believe that triple crown based on this model is, uh, is very dynamic because it's more inclusive and it does some things uh, even from the public participation side. I think we've got a uh, continue to evolve that. And now to your point, if you're from New York, you've got three reasons to come down as opposed to one reason to come down to the event. So now it was lovely to see you talking with so much passion about your project. Um, if I'm allowed to ask, how long do you have agreements with the city or the state or your sponsors? I mean, uh, you're here to stay, correct? So how long you have a secured future and how long you're in your ideal scenario, how long you want to keep going? I think the, the Holy Grail is the triple crown 
of getting three to four of these events propped up. And easier said than done, especially with COVID and, and the pandemic, that tripped it up. So we've got a minimum three-year agreement with the state of Maryland. And so that's, that's critical that we've got them and they actually own the event. We've, we're kind of like the licensees that produce all this, Metalist and KOM. And so the vision of this is projected out at, at least five years right now with a business plan by year three or four to extend to multiple days. And then we've already been asked the question on, well, how come you don't have a, a women's event the first year? And it was a complicated, uh, a lot of complications behind that. There were two other uh, large UCI events over in Europe, and it was kind of explained to us up front, you know, let's get the, the men's race up and running. And so, yeah, next year, our business plan calls for a women's race on top of this. And I think, you know, we have to we have to prove ourselves first. And it's not like we're not thinking about being inclusive and in, in how we're doing that. Uh, but there's a delicate balance, I think, in what we try to do financially and then also what we're trying to do with the objectives of multiple groups from the state to the city. And then, of course, you know, for our sponsors and then ultimately getting that response from the team. And, uh, you know, the, the question I'd ask both of you guys is how you how did you enjoy and look at the U.S. events, you know, in hindsight, now that you guys can look back, you know, in your careers and, and um, how we produce these events in the on U.S. soil? Um, you know, it's I go back. Maybe I should ask this a different way. I always go back to what Mike Plant drilled in my head as a, as a youngster. The number one group you've got to impress in putting an event of this level is the athletes and in my 30 year career in international sports, looking back, he couldn't be more right. If we're doing everything that's athlete centric and focused and they, they're the best spokespeople for your event. So if you're putting your best foot forward for the athletes, usually, hopefully, you know, good things will follow. And there's other mitigating factors why events may come and go, but hopefully the lasting impression with, uh, you know, athletes like you at your level is that they had a great experience and that they would come back. Well, I'll let Jens answer the question first, because to me, racing in the U.S. was was always a treat. But Jens, what was your what is your answer to Steve's question about the races in America and how you enjoyed them and remember them? Well, I loved the public, first of all, because they were hungry for European riders, for new faces. They you know, when we had one or two races in the U.S., maybe it was once-in-a-lifetime chance to see Tom Bowden who come to California or have Peter Sagan racing there. Um, so that was always lovely to see the, the passion and how warm they would welcome you. I loved the large roads. No cobblestones, like really good surface. And just in terms of pure sports, those were hard events. There are no lucky winners. You had to be a really damn good rider to perform, right? California, US Pro Challenge, Tour of Missouri. There's no lucky winners. It was always good riders to win. I loved how much space you have. The parking lot, easy. Fantastic hotels. Box spring beds. Man, first time I saw them was in these races. I'm like, fuck, they are awesome. So there's a whole reason of um, events great shopping for the kids you know when you have a day off uh, after the race you know it's a great shopping for the kids and then just to see a different culture 
you know, talk to different people. So all in all, I only have good memories about racing in the US. And honestly, I can't wait for it to come back. And that already results in my next question. If, in your opinion, your expert opinion, if there is a multiple day event, would it be rather a brand new event like a tour of Seattle or tour of Kansas? Or you think it would rather be Georgia coming back or Colorado coming back or something completely brand new just starting from scratch? That's a loaded question, Jens, because the U.S. is so big and it's so mm -hmm. diverse. And if we're talking Luxembourg, we'd have one or two opportunities, right, for cities. And so because the U.S., what I've learned over the years is that every location has got its own personality and its own culture. And Bobby, you grew up in Colorado, so you can associate with this. You know, there's always been this weird fascination with um, what's the best place to put a stage race and what's the best place to hold a bike race. And the answer is wherever there's fans and wherever there's passion. And so for the longest time, People thought Colorado was that place because that's where the Colorado Classic or the Course Classic was. But then it added, you know, if you look at historically, then it added California and then they added Hawaii and it maybe was a bridge too far and it kind of broke the model. So then everybody said, well, California's got to be the Holy Land, right? Because it's got everything. It's got people. It's got water. It's got, you know, the topography is unbelievable in the warm weather. But then if you looked at Colorado, you could say, well, that's where the most avid fans are. And then, you know, I live here. That's kind of an arrogant statement because I think we've seen great fans around the country for depending where you put the event. And so it's it, it does come back to the delicate balance of putting an event at this level on and then where where you should go. Believe me, the number one question I've heard in with the current event with the Maryland Cycling Classic is why, why Maryland? Why, why Baltimore? And part of the reason was they wanted to do an event of this level. And it also had a lot of good history. And people don't realize that the first pro championship in the U.S. was actually held in the Inner Harbor in Baltimore. 40 years later, we're coming back. And so thanks to people like Dave Chawner, you know, who put on, you know, the Philly event and, and a lot of one-day events, including the San Francisco Grand Prix, Yeah, those guys were forerunners with Michael Eisner. And then Mike Plant and Medalist have kind of picked up the charge. Now, as I'm, you know, closer to the end of my career than the beginning of my career, I've got to assess, Jens, what I put my time into, and, and maybe even Chris Ehrenholtz thinking the same thing at Medalist. And I think right now, the model, the because you've got to look at the economics behind this. Um, it, it's got to be that one to three day event. And it you know, where you put those one to three day events is, uh, is interpretive, you know, and I, I, I can tell you right now, I'm talking to three other cities that have got interest in the model and two of them are coming to Maryland to observe. So there's something to the new model that we talked about earlier that I think is dynamic. And, you know, if you don't evolve, you're going to die. Right. And so we're trying to evolve here. There's gravel and the popularity of gravel. It's a totally different dynamic than road racing and elite road racing. You know, so I don't want to compare apples to oranges and people always ask, well, why aren't you doing a gravel race? 
I've never done a gravel race, so I, I, I can't speak for myself. Medalists can speak for themselves uh, independently. We've done road racing. We've done road racing well. We think the East Coast is an underserved area and has been, and the World Championship showed that with six deep. I mean, the, no one can argue with the crowds in Richmond. They were phenomenal. So why not, why not the East Coast should be the question. And then to your point, Jens, well, why not maybe Colorado going back to where some of these events were and maybe changing the model? And I think that that's to be determined, but it, it, it's definitely part of the discussion over the next two, three years. Well, let me tell you one thing. Um, I've had the honor and privilege of still traveling around the country. Um, I've lived in many different parts of the country, and I'm constantly blown away by the popularity of cycling in what I would have perceived a non-cycling community. So what I love what you guys are doing there with the Maryland Cycling Classic and and you know going to the schools, having these festivities is just one thing, boils down to exposing kids to something that they've never seen before. And for me, that was growing up in Glenwood Springs in like 1982, maybe, um, on the way from, I don't know, could have been Grand Junction toward the moon up to Aspen, we saw all these vans with these fancy bikes on the roof or all these vans with fancy bikes on the roof. And I asked my dad, dad, what were all those vans doing with bikes on the roof? He goes, I don't know. The next year, the same thing happened. And he was just like, I think there's a bike race. The year after that, uh, he finally said, you know what? It, there is a bike race. This is like, you know, the Olympic year. Uh, do you want to go watch it? And I got to go watch it and I fell in love with the sport. The other really cool thing was, you know, you mentioned um, the honor of wearing the national team jersey in the, in the Tour de Trump and the Tour de Pont all those years. One of the coolest things that I remember from those races is going by the schools and seeing all the kids outside the school, yelling, screaming, clapping. And back then, I wasn't much older than them. I look at them, I was like, they're only out here because they get 30 minutes out of school. But years later, I cannot tell you the number of people that have come up to me either at a bike race, you know, as a cyclist themselves, or still as a fan saying, I remember watching you guys ride by during the Tour de Pont and the Tour de Trump, and now they're in, in the sport. So exposure and this is going to be a great chance to expose more kids from a different area i mean cycling in colorado and california you're kind of you see it everywhere but i think this is fantastic i cannot wait to see it i'm going to go up and i'm going to experience it myself and um i just i just want to wish you all the best i know it's always hard you know doing something like this for the first time but this is something that's going to be sustainable. Hopefully those other company or those other uh, towns and, and states that you're talking to will kind of catch on and, and turn this into to something great because we have an amazing talent pool here in the U.S. All we need to do is expose these young men and women to this amazing sport. And then, then we're off to the races. Then we're back to the, the glory days. So I know as a race promoter and as an event coordinator, you don't hear the words thank you very often. But on behalf of Jens and I and, and our producer, Mark, thank you very much for making this happen. Um, I, 
I can't wait to see the race in September. Well, I appreciate that, Bobby. I really do. And thanks, Jens and you know, and Mark, because it yeah, you sometimes you're in a you're in a trench and you're working your ass off and being a former athlete, you never, at least I don't, I don't mentally relent easy. You know, I, I, I got kind of the, you wish sometimes you were on the bike more, you're out on a trail run more, or, you know, you're spending more time with your family and you, but you also try to keep focused on what your end result is. And so I know personally, I've always looked at, I want to see the res, the result in a fan cheering that like there's nothing better there I want to see an athlete react and say this is a phenomenal race and you want your sponsors to say this is an incredible experience how do I reinvest and so all that filters into like your day-to-day grind you know and it's no different than when you guys were on the bike you'd have to sometimes slog 200 kilometers when you didn't feel great and so you're on the back end of 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 maybe a climb at the end of a training session and, you, and you're just not feeling it, you're still pushing through it. And it's no no different, I think, as an event promoter in just making sure you know what the end goal is. And there's a lot of people out there that are, are naysayers or it's not going to happen, especially through COVID. I, I can't tell you, you, you know, but we had really good support from United Healthcare as a presenting sponsor and in, in the, in the state support. So if you're two critical foundational partners are, are uh, supporting you, yeah, you feel a little bit better getting up and dusting yourself off. Uh, and then, you know, the result is, you know, we got to get one of these under a belt, but I feel good and bullish about where we're moving. And so your support, you know, does mean a, a big deal because uh, it, it gives you a little bit more, that extra motivation, especially going in the last three weeks here. Fantastic, Steve. I'm so glad you were our guest tonight. So I know all about the race now and we will put it out there so everybody hopefully can come and enjoy it. That, that would be awesome. I know there, there's nothing better, I say, and I've, I've been fortunate. The one thing I can say is I, I, I was talking about earlier, I, I left the industry for nine years. And then I worked at the Olympic Committee. And when I was with the Olympic Committee, I worked across like 30 different sports. And I would put cycling fans and their passion up there with the top two or three sports I've been involved in. And, and so that passion carries itself in a lot of different ways. It's just trying to translate that hopefully into the road scene, you know, in the next few years and trying to rebuild this. And it's, it, it's not easy. There's no doubt about it. Um, but I think the rewarding part is, is when you finally able to produce the event. Um, and once again, I give medalists a lot of credit, state of Maryland, and even our, our supporters without that group behind you, uh, you know, it, it means for, uh, it becomes really shallow, but I think right now, Because of that support, we're feeling like we're rising from the ashes in, in a lot of ways. Well, Steve, it's been a fantastic talk. I know that uh, judging by those bags under your eyes, you probably have a few more dozen calls to make today. So thank you for your time and thank you for coming on, Bobby and Jens. All right. Appreciate the opportunity, guys. See you. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Huge thanks to Steve for being our guest. Thanks for listening. And please give us a five-star review and share us with your friends. The show was a Bella News production in association with Shock Giraffe. The producer was Mark Payne, and this episode was edited by Tim Moza. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Bobby and Jens and share your cycling stories with us.